Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsnetwork.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Ross. Coming up on today's show, the Boeing 737 MAX. What's really wrong with it? Dr. Schertz gets into that. IBM used Flickr photos to train employees in facial recognition. Spaceships traveling at the speed of light could happen. We'll tell you how. Artificial intelligence makes its way to the fast food drive through And in Profiles in IT, it's George Charles Duvall who invented the first robotic arm used in industrial production work. And along the way, he invented something called the Speedy Weenie. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Oh, very good. We got an email from Tom Schum. Dear Doc and Jim, you explained inertial propulsion incorrectly. It's more like a bicycle that works in space. It's not anything like a perpetual motion machine. You have to pedal the bicycle to get anywhere, Tom Shum. Well, thanks for the feedback, Tom. Um, Yeah, these perpetual motion machines are based on kind of an asymmetric spinning wheel that vibrates, and then the motion is rectified, pushing it all in one direction, sort of like an AC signal can be rectified to be a DC signal. Okay. So the theory is that such rectification produces thrust in one direction. Skeptics say this violates Newton's third law, but some people are saying Newton's third law might have to be modified. So this is an area of mm-hmm. active research, and people are uh, disagreeing on whether inertial propulsion actually okay. would work. We got an email from Sharon in Richmond. Dear Doc and Jim, I was curious about the Windows 10 operating system. What's the difference between Windows and Windows Server? They look the same to me. Love the show. Sharon Richmond. Well, Microsoft offers a Windows desktop and a Windows Server version, and they look very, very similar. I mean, in fact, if you would load a clean copy of Windows 10 and Windows Server 2016, it'd be easy to confuse the two. They've got the same desktop, same start button, even have they the same task view buttons. They use the same kernel, and they can run the same software. But the similarities end there. Windows 10 is for a desktop machine that you sit in front of and work on applications like Microsoft Word. Windows Server has other options. With Windows Server, actually, many times you don't even use the graphical user interface with Windows Server. You just use the services that are available in the server edition. So the Windows Server has additional services on there like Windows Deployment Services, DHCP for assigning IP addresses, Active Directory Domain Services. These are used for managing other machines. Um, Now, you could get these features in a Windows 10, but not natively. You'd have to install a third-party software package like Apache Web Server. Windows Server also supports server message blocks for faster file sharing and greater support of the resilient file system. You only get that in the server edition. So the server is significantly different than the actually the desktop windows. 
In addition, it supports more powerful software. Windows 10 Pro has a maximum limit of 2 terabytes of RAM, and Windows Server allows for 24 terabytes. Now, the desktop user is unlikely to really ever need that much RAM, but the server uses a lot because they're, they're running many virtual machines through Hyper-V. So there's a difference, but at the surface, they look very similar. We got an email from Lois in Kansas. I'm thinking of getting an inkjet printer to print pictures that I take on my cell phone. I was wondering whether the picture, whether printing the pictures myself is any cheaper than going through a service. What's your opinion, Lois in Kansas? Well, well, actually, it's probably cheaper to have a service do that. Let's let's run through the numbers. Let's just for the sake of uh, convenience, let's talk about four by six prints. Shutterfly, one of the most popular photo printing services, charged 12 cents for a 4x6 print, while as Amazon, Snapfish, and Walmart will all print your 4x6 photos for 9 cents each. Now, let's see how much it costs you to print it. Let's suppose you got a Canon Prixma IP8070 printer to print your photos. That's a, it's a really a good photo printer. It's about $180. A set of ink cartridges is $55, and Canon alleges that that will print 780 photos. But, yeah, I think that's questionable. But let's just go with 780. That means it costs you $0.07 cents of ink for each 4x6 print. Then you have to buy paper. And let's suppose you get the pack of 400 sheets for $20. That's $0.05 cents a sheet. So in addition to the $180 print cost, you're paying $0.12 cents for every 4x6 photo. Now, of course, that's idealistic. You never get that many pictures out of, the, out of one print cartridge because, you know, if you don't print a lot of pictures, your print cartridges die. You've got to replace it sooner. I've never hit that max limit. So the cheapest is going to be $0.12 cents a print, and it's probably going to be more than that. So the only advantage of printing them at home, and I do have a, a printer at home, is that you can print it immediately. So we've got, so we'll have guests come over, we take pictures, and we can print a, a picture and just give it to them right away. So I, I think it's nice to be able to print pictures, but if you're printing a lot of pictures, I'd send them off to a file service to, to print it. That means Periscope's back up. Oh, Periscope's, <laughs> Periscope's back up. There we go. I'm good to hear that. Things are things are coming back online here. We've got an email from Dennis in Oklahoma. Dear Tech Talk, I just bought a new router, and it supports both 5 gigahertz and 2.4 gigahertz. What's the best one to use? Dennis in Alexandria. Well, you know, Wi-Fi can run on two different bands. These are basically un unlicensed bands. One is a 5 gigahertz band. The other was the 2.4 gigahertz band. It turns out that... 5 gigahertz is the newest one. It went mainstream when they came out with 802.11n standard. And it is very good. It's faster, and it oper and, and there's less congestion. You don't have as many other people on the 5 gigahertz band, so you'll have less interference. But, but it doesn't penetrate through walls as well as the 2.4 gigahertz band. So if you've got to cover a large area and you don't have too many people around you, the 2.4 gigahertz band is... Would be best. So I'd say if you're in an apartment house with a lot of neighbors around there, you're going to want to have the five gigahertz band. You'll have less we, interference. We have we have proven that to be the case. That is with exactly, my own personal experience. Right? That's exactly right. Then if you get up, if you go to two point four gigahertz, you can you can cover a, a broader area. Now, I don't like my router to switch back and forth. You know, to go from two point four to five, always picking the best one. See, if you if you name both bands with the same uh, SSID. Your, your cell phone or your d detection device d d decides which band it has based on which, uh, which signal is stronger. And I like to pick one or the other. 
So I actually go into my router and I name the 5 gigahertz has with one name, 2.4 gigahertz with another name. And when I decide to attach to a network, I pick which one I want depending on depending on the situation. And I, I set this – it's the same password for both of them, so that's not an issue. And you, you go back and forth. But typically, if you are in an area where you do not have a, a lot of interference and you've got a big house to cover, you're probably better at 2.4 gigahertz. We got an email from Paula in Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, can you suggest – some low-cost or free options to learn coding on my own. I love computers and think I could learn a lot in my free time. Love the show, Paula in Kansas. Well, learning how to code is no longer just for IT professionals. Here, you know, you can, you know, they they expect, you know, everybody's expected to know how to code a little bit, even if you're just coding and coding an application in Microsoft Excel. So here are just a few free sites that are pretty good. Treehouse is pretty good. They've got over a thousand videos that have been created by experts on web design, coding. You practice what you've learned by taking quizzes and completing interactive coding challenges. Now you can sign up for that for $25 a month, or you can get the pro plan for $49 a month. Khan Academy is completely free. Now the Khan Academy has all sorts of it's got personalized dashboards, practice exercises, instructional video. There are courses for beginners that don't know where to start, and they go all the way up to professional level. You don't pay anything for the Khan Academy. It's a really a great resource. Then you've got Code School. This is a, a learning destination for those who are aspiring or experienced developers. So this is a little bit more advanced. Students can choose different tracks, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Ruby, Elixir, PHP, .NET, Python, iOS, Git, SQL. These are all some of the options. And um, if you want to sign up for Code School, it's around $29 a month. EDX is an on is a leading online learning platform. It's not-for-profit. It's open source, founded in 2012 by MIT and Harvard. EDX has over 90 partners around the world. It's open source and available free. They've got a lot of great coding courses there. Coursera is pretty good. That's matured into a fairly large for-profit educational company. It offers over 1,000 courses from 119 institutions. Courses are normally four to six weeks, and you pay between $29 and $99 per course. And then you, Udacity is a way to also get online courses. Now, these online courses, they've got a JavaScript course for free. They've got a few free courses on Udacity, but then the more intense courses have a, have a nominal fee. They also have something at Udacity called Nano Degrees, where you can put together a group of courses to get a nano degree in a particular area. So those are four, those are six options that I gave you. There are a lot more, but those are six pretty good ones that you could start out to learn coding on your own. We got an email from Dennis in Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, I've been using Dropbox free for many years, but it limits me to only three devices and on two gigabytes of storage. There must be better options for me if I want to keep if I want to keep using cloud storage but not pay anything. Well, Dennis, you do have a lot of options. Um, I mean, eventually, I think you will have have to start paying something. But here are your free options. Quite a few of them are out there. You've got Google Drive. Now, Google Drive is pretty good. It offers 15 gigabytes of free storage. It's, it's a lot of storage. Mm -hmm. Now, you share that with your Gmail account. And you can connect to an unlimited. You can sync it to an unlimited number of devices. Now, the other nice thing is that Google Backup and Sync software lets you easily back up and sync, sync folders other than the Google Drive folder. So you can use it as, as sort of a general backup location. 
Now, it's also integrated with Google Docs, so you can easily work with Google Docs and store them on the Google Drive. It's, it's a nice ecosystem. They provide apps for Android, iPhone, and iPad. And you can access, of course, your files anywhere with a browser and a regular computer. So that's not a bad deal. Microsoft OneDrive is also has a lot of free storage. Microsoft OneDrive gives you 5 gigabytes of free storage. Now, it's convenient because it's built right into Windows 10. It has what they call files on demand where it'll store your files on the cloud while, and it'll show them in the, in the um, file explorer. And then when you click on them, it will download it from the cloud and put it right on your PC. So it's a very, it's a very convenient way to operate it. Microsoft has clients for the Mac OS. They have clients for Android, the iPhone, and the iPad. So that's not a bad option. Now, of course, we've got Apple iCloud Drive. They offer five gigabytes of free storage, and you can back up all, all your photos and files, and there are no limit on the number of devices. Now, the iCloud is built into the Mac operating system, but they also have a client for Windows, so you can actually have an iCloud client for Windows. Not a bad option. Now, if you actually want to start paying for paying for storage that uh, they have not that you you can actually do that and it's not too expensive dropbox for instance is going to charge you 99 dollars for one terabyte of storage google drive will tar- charge you a one nine uh, google drive will charge you a dollar 99 uh for per month for 100 gigabytes and they'll charge you $99 a year for two terabytes of storage. Microsoft OneDrive will charge $69 for Office 365 personal, 365 personal, plus they give you one terabyte of storage, as well as Microsoft Office. Now, Apple charges $0.99 cents per month for 50 gigabytes of storage, or $9.99 per month if you want to get two terabytes of storage. So... Actually, cloud storage is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And I've got to admit, I use all of those services. I've used them all. They're there. I get as much free storage as I can get. (laughs) We got an email from Dan in Kansas. Dear Doc and Jim, I have a vintage whole house audio system, and it's powered with a 200-watt stereo amplifier. And the system was installed before Wi-Fi or streaming music, and it's got an antiquated way you know, to activate the music and get it over the whole house. I'd like to stream Pandora over the whole house. You know, I currently, uh, you know, have a few echoes in the house, and I, I do stream music through the echoes, but I'd like to use my all the speakers that are installed in the house. What, what do you think my best option is? Dan in Pittsburgh, Kansas. Well, Dan, since you've already invested in the Amazon Echoes, I, you know, you're in the, you know, you're in the Echo, Amazon Echo, you know, ecosystem. You might as well stick with Amazon. Now, you can, what you need to get is a wireless preamp. This would be a device that would hook to Wi-Fi, and then you can stream, uh, stream uh, music through that wireless preamp. And then you just plug the preamp into your amplifier and distribute it through the whole house. And, and so you'd, you'd, you'd plug it into there just, just like you'd plug in, a, say, a CD player in, into, your, into your amplifier. And you just have to make certain you got the right input, input port set up so it... So it then goes out over the whole house. Now, Yamaha and Sonos make, um, make preamps, wireless preamps, where you can stream music, but they're, they're around $350. You've got a pretty good preamp that's put out by Amazon. They've got the Amazon Echo Link preamp. It's, it's around $200. And, um, and you, can, you, know, you, can use the, you can use the smart home app that doesn't have a microphone in it. So what you'll have to do is 
If you've got other echoes in the house, you can you can activate that using the other echoes, or you could activate that streaming using the uh, the Amazon Echo app, and then you could, you could turn it on. But that's not a bad option. It's uh, it's sort of like a you know it's sort of like a uh, uh, it's it's like a, it's, it it basically it, it's it operates just like an echo, and you can just uh, plug it in with a wire into the preamp, and it's got enough power to drive that amplifier, and it's got really good sound quality. Now, you also, as another plug, you could also plug in a CD player. You could plug in a record player into this into this Amazon Echo Link preamp, and you could actually use your app to switch between them if you wanted to use that as a sort of a mini, mini receiver deal, so you could do it all remotely. So it's a pretty good option. We got an email from Lois in Kansas. Dear Doc and Jim, recently a friend of ours died, and it's Family's having trouble taking control of his Facebook account. I don't want that to happen to me. Yeah. How do I specifically – what do I do with my Facebook account if something happens to me? How, how can I sort of plan for that? Love the show, Lois in Kansas. Well, Lois, Facebook gives you two options for such an eventuality. You can choose to either delete your account when you die or you can have it memorialized. These are the two choices. In the case of a memorialized account, what you do, you leave somebody in charge of your account – to make certain that it's curated. And then after you're gone, your friends and family can get together. They can share memories of you. They can post things on that and talk about you after you're gone. The only, But the name of the site is going to be remembering and then your name, like remembering Lois. And then you have to have somebody who would curate it. So in order to set up your account so that it can be memorialized after you pass away, you need to appoint a legacy contact. This would be a friend or a family member who you trust and who would take care of your wishes. To set up a legacy contact, you first open settings in Facebook, then click on security, and then click on legacy contact. Now you simply appoint a friend to serve as your legacy contact. Now your legacy contact will not get any powers over this site until you're officially gone. Somebody's going to have to make a request. They'll send something to Facebook, either a, a, a proof that you've died, like an obituary, obituary, a copy of the death certificate. And at that point, control will be transferred over to your legacy person. Now, another option, of course, is just to have the account deleted. And you can simply, when you, when you pass away, your account is deleted. And in that case, you'd simply, you could set up that. You simply go to security and then contacts and then instead of uh, getting a memorial contact, you just put down request account deletion at that, at that point. And then after you've passed away, someone will simply notify Facebook that you've died. They'll send your uh, death certificate or obituary, and then Facebook will actually totally <coughs> delete the account. So those are the two options, and you really want to do that before something happens to you. Otherwise, it just goes into never-never land. We got an email from Lynn in Orlando. Dear Tech Talk, I frequently work from home and need to set up conference calls. I only have an iPhone at home. Is there any kind of service that I could use for conference calls? I love the show, Lynn, in Orlando. Well, Lynn, your iPhone will let you set up a conference call with up to five people. It's really easy to do. Other people don't need anything special. They just either a cellular phone or a landline phone. So all you have to do to set this up to start your conference call is you call the first participant just using your regular phone dialer. And then if you look at the, uh, you know, at the screen on your, uh, on your iPhone, there's going to be a button called Add Call. So you, you tell this person you're going to add somebody and you're going to put them on hold. So you click Add Call, puts the current person on hold. You call the second person 
And then after you get contact with them, you click another button, which is which shows up on the dialer, which is merge calls. So you click merge calls, and then those two people are together. Then if you want to add a third person, you simply click add call. Those two are put on hold. You call the third person, and then you merge that. And you can go that, through that process until you have five people, five people on the call. I mean, five people including, yeah, five people on the call. So it's very easy to do, and um, and then you don't need any complicated conferencing software. We got an email from Tong in Ohio. Dear Tech Talk, I have a new Mac computer, and it uses a Bluetooth mouse, and I can't seem to connect my Bluetooth speaker on at the same time. I, I'm listening to some audio files that my sister sent me, and I can't get the mouse and the speaker working all at the same time. It, it, maybe Bluetooth doesn't support two devices. Maybe it only supports one device at a time. I'm trying to figure this thing out. Please help me. Love the show, Tung, in Ohio. Well, Tung, um, a single Bluetooth device can communicate with up to eight different devices that are within 30-foot radius. Now, Bluetooth 4.0 randomly chooses from 40 frequencies, and it randomly chooses those 1,600 times a second in order to minimize interference between these all these various devices. So you should have no trouble connecting to the speaker and the mouse at all. Should be no problem at all. More than likely, your speaker is connected to something else. Maybe your speaker is connected to your iPhone. And if it's connected to your iPhone, it will not connect to your computer. So you need to disconnect it from your iPhone. Now, what you could do just to force that, you could turn off your iPhone. You could turn off anything else that the, that the Bluetooth speaker might be connected to. So the only choice it has is your Mac. And at that point, the Mac should discover it. You put it in discovery mode, the Mac should discover it, and you can attach to it. So I don't think you should have any problems here, but uh, best of luck, and email back if it doesn't work. Listen, we love your emails. You can email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network at 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2. You can watch us do the show by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. 
IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature George Charles Duvall, Jr., now, George Duvall was an American inventor and a very prolific inventor who was known for developing Unimate, the first material handling robot employed in industrial production work. He came with the first robot used in automotive manufacturing. He invented it. George Duvall was born February 20th, 1912 in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, he was always interested as a boy in all things electrical and mechanical. He's always taking things apart, figuring out how they worked. He attended Rorden Prep School, and he didn't really like his classes that much. But but he liked to study all sorts of things, mechanical and electrical. So they, they let him construct some buildings on the campus there. He ran the school's electric plant. And he, <laughs> he, he was having a good old time. But he wasn't really, you know, an academic star there at the school. Mm-hmm. He wasn't very scholarly, but he could figure how stuff worked out very easily. After graduating from high school, he decided to forget college. It's just, I'm not going to class. I would just want to start inventing. So he started United Cinephone, and he had the idea that he would find a way to put fi- to put sound directly onto film for the newly invented motion pictures called talkies. No kidding. Yeah, so he... So he started working on this. At, he, it's called United Cinephone, and he, and he got <laughs> Cinephone. And, and he got all of the C I N E, not S I N. I thought this is a well. <laughs> I was actually thinking cinnamon flavored phone, oh, but that's, that's something. Right. Never mind. Cinephone, that's, that's Cinnabon. Right. That's right. Never mind. And so and so he well this this would be a very good idea. And you put the sound directly on the on the film. So he got photo detectors and all the electronics to build this thing. And then he discovered that other people were working on it, like like RCA and some really big players and he thought you know I don't think I don't think I'm going to make I'm going to make any headway here because they're going to beat me to the marketplace so he pivoted to other things and he had all of these photo sensors he had all these vacuum tubes all this electronics that he had purchased for the for the uh, for the sound uh, motion picture sound project he said well what can I do with it so he started inventing stuff the first thing he did he took a photo sensor and he invented the photoelectric door this is the door that automat. Now we just we just used to it. You walk up to the door and it opens. Well, he invented that and he he licensed that and they started producing the first photoelectric door. Then he said, "Well, what else can I do with these photo cells?" So then he invented a barcode system for sorting packages for Railway Express. And so they put a barcode system on there. He'd use these photo detectors. They would detect the barcode and boom, they they would track it. He did the first optical registration control for color offset printing using these same components. He ought to, in addition, he, he built a photoelectric people counter so at the World's Fair they could count the number of people going in and out of the building, you know, th- throughout the day. So this guy could just come up with all kinds of ideas. He could put, put the, the electronics together, he could field it, and he could sell it. He was extremely prolific. When World War II began... He decided he wanted to do something to really help the country, so he sold United Cinephone and all of these inventions that he had made, and he and he and he went to Sperry, um, uh, uh, you know, Sperry Gyroscope, and he said he'd like to help them with uh, radar, with their develop the radar system. So Sperry hired him to develop radar devices and microwave test equipment. 
So uh, he he worked on he, he worked at Sperry for a while, and then uh, then a couple years later he was he was hired by Auto Ordnance to produce counter radar devices. See, because once we had radar, then the enemy had radar, and then we had to have counter radar devices to override their radar detection capabilities. So, so he began working on counter radar devices, and the and the uh, Auto Ordnance. Uh, Radar countermeasure systems were on every single Allied plane by on D-Day. Hmm. Now, Duvall was part of the team that developed the first commercial use of microwave ovens. This device automatically cooked and dispensed hot dogs, and it was called the Speedy Weenie. And so there you go again. The, the first speedy weenie. commercial use of microwave ovens, the speedy weenie. You know, it's pretty quick to cook <laughs> a hot dog anyway. I, you know, I don't know. But I would was, think of a lot of other things to use the microwave for. And you could. Well, but back then, they, you know, they were trying to make a case for it. You they know? had hot dogs back then. That's they, the, they had hot the dogs back then. So, you know, I use it to heat up water. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, that's, Yeah. <laughs> In 1946, he applied for a patent on magnetic recording systems for controlling machines and also for a digital playback devices for machines. This is this was so that he could record things and he could send the information to machines. This would ultimately become the brains of the robot system that he was going to invent later on. And so this was the beginning of his robotic thinking. He developed first the magnetic recording system so he could record different uh, commands and he could and he send those to machines. Then in 1954, he applied for and received a patent for the programmed article transfer device. And, and he introduced the concept of universal automation. Universal automation. And he shortened that to unimation. Universal automation. He shortened it to unimation. And ultimately, he termed it unimate. Unimate. So he came up with this programmable article transfer device, which he termed Unimate, and this was basically the robotic arm, say, that was used initially for auto manufacturing, say, to do to do welding or to move parts from here to there to stack parts, and it was just this robotic arm that you could, that you could program to do different things. And so he applied for the patent. Now, what is interesting, this particular patent was so original there was not a single prior citation because you usually have to do prior prior work in the area and you have to do those citations so that you differ from the prior work. There was no prior work. This huh. was the first of its kind. This was a new category, an extremely innovative idea. Now, he teamed up with Joseph F. Engelberger, who we featured last week. Now, Engelberger recognized the power of this device. It was more than just a programmed article transfer device, he realized that you could use this robotic technique across all industries to do lots and lots of things. So he was thinking big. So he and Duvall teamed up, and they convinced Consolidated Diesel Electronics to back the development of the robot. And the new division within Consolidated Diesel Electronics was called Unimation, and Unimation made the Unimate. So Joseph Engelberger was like the Steve Jobs of uh, of uh, robotics. He took the idea, he marketed the idea, he got it accepted. But uh, George Duvall is like the Steve Wozniak of Apple, who actually invented the device and did all the electronics in the background. Now, in the beginning, the Unimation, Unimation designed and machined every part of the Unimate because they there was there were just no 
other they couldn't buy parts for it because they were trying to do things that had never been done before. So they designed and machined every part of the Unimate. The first Unimate robot was hired was was purchased by GM General Motors to lift hot pieces of metal from a die and stack it. So you could see as, as, as a person taking these hot pieces, stack them with tongs, put them down. That would be an unpleasant job. So they had Unimate do it. The, Unimate will do anything. It will do anything that you tell it to do. Just mm-hmm. program it. Now, the first Unimate cost $5 million to develop. Uh, but obviously they had to bring the price down in order to make the money. In, by 1966, full-scale production was in running, and they had dropped the price down significantly so they could sell it at a profit. And the first robot production, the first production robot that came out of the production lines was a material handling robot, materials handling robot. And that was soon followed by robots for welding and robots for other applications. Now, GM, of course, started the, started the, um, the action in, in automotion to use it, but very quickly, all of the other auto manufacturers bought it. Mm-hmm. And you, 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 you've seen pictures now of these auto, auto assembly lines. You've got all these robotic arms doing things, putting in screws, welding, moving things. And so all of that came out of Unimate. By 1975, Unimation showed its first profit. In 1978, Puma, the programmable universal machine for assembly, was developed with support from GM. Now, Duvall obtained a whole bunch of other patents on visual and tactical sensors, tactile sensors for robots, coaxial connectors, non-refillable containers, magneto-restrictive manipulators, all sorts of inventions that were needed to make the robot more effective. He just kept inventing, inventing, inventing. He was elected as an honorary member to the Society of Manufacturing Engineers. He was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2011 and is a member of the Automation Hall of Fame. Okay. I'm yes. sorry. Have I cut you off? Yeah, you... No, you have not. Okay. So I, I, you, know, you could use the Unimate to fetch your speedy weenie. Yeah, well, because you, you don't do... want to burn your hand. That is true. You could have the speedy weenie. You could have the Unimate go in there and, cr- and put it in the bun. Well, and it comes in the bun. I actually found a picture of this thing. You Did, mean, have you it, seen this? It's cooked, it's cooked in the bun? Yeah. It, well, it, it is. It, the machine looks is the size of a Coke machine. Okay. And it says at the top, it says, what does it say? Radio, radio cook or something like that. <laughs> radio, radio chef. And then, and then uh, it, it'll cook your hot dog in 20 seconds uh-huh. and dispense it in a bun wrapped in cellophane. Wow. Guess how much it costs? How much? Ten cents. Ten cents. Ten for cents a, for a speedy weenie. For a speedy weenie. And it will spit out two hundred speedy weenies continuously without having to stop. So okay, so two hundred speedy weenies, twenty seconds each. That's four thousand seconds, right? Yeah. How long do you? Th- that, that's over an hour. Yeah. That it'll be working. Working to so, put up. There you go. So, so the the pictures <laughs> show the inside, the internal workings of this thing. You don't want to see your sausage made, nor do you want to see it cooked. Yes, that's right. <laughs> there you go. Well, there you go. Everything, you know, this is something I'd never talked about a speedy weenie before. No, well, there's the a first for everything. There's a first. That, there you go. Everything you want to know about George Duvall, who is the man who invented the first robotic arm. And the speedy weenie. And the speedy weenie. Yes. All right. It is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. It's time for you to get uh, free food. It probably won't be a hot dog, but it will be something a lot better than that. So we're going to play the pop quiz next here on uh, Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio. Heard on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2. You can watch us. 
Cook Weenies here in the studio by downloading the Periscope app and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell. The security guard at the front desk, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Jim Russ. Happy Saturday morning. Thank you all for tuning in to Tech Talk Radio this Memorial Day weekend. In Profiles in IT, we just finished talking about George Charles Duvall. He was an engineer. He invented the first robotic arm that was used in industrial assembly line work. During World War II, Duvall was involved in developing radar and counter-radar systems. That work led to the microwave oven. Technology in the microwave oven was then used in this device, which was found in lots of lunchrooms back in the 40s and 50s. Today's pop quiz question, tell us what that device was called. Well, it sounds like Jim's trying to slip one past us. If you know the answer to today's question, you need to pick up your device and give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. If you're enjoying the long holiday weekend in or east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. Thinking about microwaving lunch in Canada? Call us on the wild card line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else, may call us on the international line, 877-936-39333. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, standing by to take your calls. So, dial now. IBM has been using Flickr photos for facial recognition training. Now, IBM took nearly a million photos from Flickr. This is a site where photographers upload their upload their pictures, uh, and they, they hope to sell them. And uh, it turned out IBM pulled about a million pictures from Flickr, and the people who were photographed 
in those pictures had no idea that their faces were being used as part of a facial recognition training system. Mm. Now, the photographers did get permission to take the pictures, but the people just thought their images were just, you know, you know just be used in a magazine or something. They didn't, they didn't know they would be part of this massive uh, face recognition uh, research project. Now, the photos were part of a larger collection of 99 million photos known as YFCC100M <laughs> that the former Flickr owner, Yahoo, originally put together to conduct research. Now, each photographer initially, originally shared their photos under the Creative Commons license, which is typical the way they, they do things, but they just didn't know about this particular application. Now, IBM said that uh, they did everything that was legal, and they said if anybody wants to opt out, they can. But first of all, nobody really knows how to do that or who to talk to or where to go. There's no page for opting out. So, um, I mean, but this is done by a lot of guys. Even Facebook has 800,000 photos that they use for for face recognition research. So I, th I think we've got to find a better way. This gets back to this whole privacy issue that Tim Berners-Lee was talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about uh, this Boeing 707 or Boeing 737 MAX control system. This is an interesting story. They're, they're going to have to update the software on this particular plane. I mean, that, so that sounds like well, this isn't a structural problem with the airplane. This is a computer problem, right? Well, okay. it's a bit of a structural problem in a way. What, what, um, what Boeing has done is that they keep modifying the 737. The 737 has been around for a long, long time. The 737 has been around for a long, long time, and they keep modifying it because it's it's easier to get approvals if you modify it. Ah, it yeah. goes back to the days when they when they when they actually brought stairs up to the airplane and you walk down stairs. Really, it it goes back to the days before they had these conveyor belts for luggage, and the guys had to lift the luggage onto the flight. So it had to be very low to the ground, mm -hmm. very very low to the ground. And so what, what has happened is that, you know, now since then we now have these ramps. So the newer planes don't have to be so low to the ground. And they've had to modify the structure because the engines get bigger and bigger and bigger. The original engines were only 49 inches in diameter, and they're like long cigars. The new engines right. are 69 inches yeah. in diameter. Mm -hmm. And that meant that the engine would hit the ground. And so they had to raise the wings up, and they had to d distort the, and they had to sort of flatten the the the, the bottom of the of the uh, of the uh, engine cover, and they had to raise the wings up, in order to get the engine so they wouldn't hit the ground. And what happened was this made the 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 plane aerodynamically off center, and it tends to the nose tends to go up if it just is normally in a normal drift state. So what they did. They use software to to compensate for that nose up problem, and the software then pushes the nose down. Ah, okay. And so, but but then the but then there are sensors that are constantly monitoring this because the plane will not glide straight unless it's actively managed because it's out of balance because they've used the same frame over and over again. They, they, so you truly cannot put this thing in manual mode then. No. Well, you could, you, you, well, you could, but it would, you, you would really be flying it now. And so, what's happening? I mean, in automatic mode, you can't put it in a true automatic autopilot situation. No, can no, you? That, no, it, it has an autopilot, okay. and all the software knows about these tendencies, but that it's all, it's all dependent on these sensors. 
that uh, that are sensing the uh, the airflow and the tilt. And it turned out if the sensors are incorrect, then it goes into a nosedive. Uh, and that's what was happening. So that's what happened in that first flight in Thailand. So this happens Thailand. when the, it's in autopilot is when this happens. When it's in autopilot. And so and it and what's particularly dangerous during takeoff, yeah. if during takeoff it thinks that the, the, the glide sensors are wrong, it 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 pushes the plane down and you've got no altitude. And so the pilots were fighting this. And so the so the question is and this is the question. They're, they're, they are going to put in a software control here, a software fix that is going to go through and try to detect bad sensors and not do something that's wrong. Now, had these pilots been experienced, they would have automatically taken it out of autopilot mode They because there's, there's just a button right in the, in, in the steering wheel. They can push that button and take it out of autopilot. So an experienced pilot, like in the U.S., if the autopilot all of a sudden is acting weird, you take it out of autopilot and take over. And I think it was the problem with the pilots in these other crashes. They were not experienced, and they didn't take it out of autopilot, and they tried to fight the autopilot. So, and, it's, and so, so it was a bit of a training problem. Plus, I think it's a software problem, but I think the core problem is they didn't start from scratch, and they kept trying to use the same airframe over and over and over you again. Then that's really one of the things about aviation is experience is huge, pilot experience, because once they've seen something and they know how to get out of it, but when you're in that mode – and something happens, and you you might lose your cool, and, and that's when things go bad. That's right. And so, you know, had these guys simply taken it out of autopilot, they'd have just, they'd have just taken just off. Just flown the airplane. They'd yeah. just flown the airplane, but they didn't know to do that. And, and, and an experienced pilot, as soon as the autopilot begins to act up, the first thing they do is take it out of autopilot. Yep. yep. And so it was really, I think, a pilot training thing. So the system that uh, that – that Boeing developed this MCAS system, which is designed to offset this this problem that it tends to steep up, is what they developed. So they're going to do a software fix, and hope they're hoping that this software fix is going to make the plane stable. But I think they've reached a point now with that airframe that the next one's going to have to be, be a, a, brand, a, brand, a brand new design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday morning on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, 1500 a.m., 103.5 FM HD2 and 103.9 FM HD2 on the web at stratford.edu and federalnewsnetwork.com. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Let's talk about this Halo Drive. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a way to accelerate spaceships to near the speed of light. Now, a new study... This was really a clever idea. Envisions firing a laser beam that would curve around a black hole and come back with added energy to help propel the spacecraft near the speed of light. And what you're basically doing is you are setting up a, um, a sail, an optical sail, and when the light hits the sail, it pushes the spacecraft. Now, the, the study's author, David Kipping, is an astrophysicist at Columbia University in New York. He came up with the idea of the halo drive... When he started thinking through the gamer, he said I had to come up with a gamer's mindset. How can I work around the the laws of the universe? I mean, the key challenge when in doing you know flying rockets around space is that if you want to really accelerate them to that speed, it takes a lot of propellant, and that makes the rocket heavier. And then it takes even more propellant to accelerate that heavier rocket so then you make a bigger rocket with more propellant which is then heavier and it just goes on and on and on and, and it becomes increasingly difficult to carry enough fuel to do that acceleration so we have to find a way to accelerate around the universe at near the speed of light without a lot of fuel now he remembered what they what spacecraft use as a slingshot maneuver where we do this all the time now where we basically go close to a planet we whip around the planet, and it and the spacecraft accelerates, and it and it and it shoots out into space. So we've done a number of this slingshot maneuvers around, you know, around planets. And what's actually happening there is you're extracting energy from the planet as you do the slingshot, and uh, and then you you can accelerate the spacecraft using the planet, and that has been done quite often. So he got the idea that maybe we could do this with black holes, and. Treat them like a gravitational mirror. Now, black holes, of course, are this, you know, 
that, you know, if you get too close to the black hole, nothing escapes, not even light. But what you do is you send a laser, you send light beam from a laser very close to the black hole, but not in the black hole. And then the, the, the force, the gravitational force of the black hole will bend the light and it will do a slingshot around the black hole and come back. This is the idea, sort of like a satellite going mm-hmm. near a planet and slingshotting. So the light will go around the black hole and come back with more energy and will actually be extracting energy from the black hole when the light comes back with more energy. And then that that light beam would hit some sort of sail that would then push the spacecraft. So that was his proposal. And he's calling that a halo drive because the light beam going around the um, black hole would look like a halo. And so the faster the black hole moves, the more energy the halo drive could draw from it. So he, he was doing calculations based on a pair of black holes orbiting around each other at relativistic speeds. Now, he estimates there are about 10 million black hole pairs in the Milky Way. So, so you can, um, you know, so there'd be enough black holes to work with. Now, the only limitation is you can't be more, you have to be close enough to the black hole for this to work. You can't be further than 50 times the black hole's diameter. So you've got to be relatively close. But once you're near a black hole, you can extract energy from it using this way. So you're going to do more work on it. But that was a clever idea. Yes, So absolutely. I thought we would just talk about that. Cool. Good news today. Good news. Quantum computers may not break the encryption of the Internet for decades. You know, there was a, um, a problem. Quantum computers are so fast that the, uh, that the encryption that the Internet is based on uh, which is, you know, determining what two prime numbers have been multiplied together in order to get some giant number. Um, that encryption algorithm may be easily solved with a quantum computer because they process so fast. And people were afraid that if the if the encryption on the internet were broken, we would have a huge problem. Well, a research paper by the by a, by a, by a firm called Cryptera, which is a uh, which is a uh, an encryption company, they said it could take decades before quantum computers can reach this point. Mm. Right now, the Grover algorithm, which is one of the algorithms that that would might be used to break the uh, encryption key in quadratic time, this would. What that means is, is that a quantum computer could make a 128-bit symmetric encryption key in the same time that it would take a classic computer to break a 64-bit symmetric encryption key. That means it would be several hundred CPU cores doing up processing for a year. So that's really still a pretty good, a pretty high bar. Now, according to the paper, breaking the AES-120 encryption would require a quantum computer with 200 by 2959 logical qubits. Breaking an AES-256 would take would require 6600 qubits. Now, the Shor algorithm that can break asymmetric encryption. Uh, needs twice as many qubits as the key size. So a, a 2048-bit RSA key would require a 4096-qubit computer. Now, the issue, though, is is that you need error correction code built into this. So you need more. So to get more qubits, you need more physical devices. So it would turn out that, uh, according to the Cryptera paper, if you'd want to create a universal computer with 1,000 qubits, qubits, it would require millions of physical qubits if they're going to use the error correction code. And he doesn't believe we're going to get millions of physical qubits 
for at least a couple of decades. So it's going to be a while before we break the encryption code of the Internet, which is good news. Uh, but still, the National Institute of Standards and Technology is working on finding the next quantum the next uh, encryption standard, which is resistant to quantum computers, they've already put out a competition, and uh, and now they've just announced phase two of the competition. The agency selected 26 of the initial 69 algorithms for phase two, and they're going to put those to the test to see which one of those can withstand optical computing. I think that's a very, very important uh, development that a very, very important project that NIST is working on. Artificial intelligence has finally hit the fast food drive-through. This is interesting. Yeah. A Denver-based food chain, Good Times, is now using artificial intelligent voice assistant in place of cashiers in their drive-through service. The restaurant's using artificial intelligence systems created by the company Valiant AI to help employees manage the restaurant more efficiently. This trend will actually eliminate jobs. So, Basically, you talk to a robot, make the order, and then it's just – and then that you're not talking to a person. Wow. The soft it, – it'd just be like talking to Siri or talking to uh, – Or how. Or how. Or, <laughs> or how, yeah. The software will be used to increase input and reduce mistakes commonly made by employees. So you can see how the, you can see how the next step, step that's going to be, once you talk to it, they'll just have a little conveyor belt that will just put everything in the bag and ship it out. You're, you're, you know, nothing – you know, there may, may, maybe no person will even touch it. You remember when we talked about the automatic hot dog machine? Yes. <laughs> this this is the this is that gone man. It it could be. Mm-hmm. Hey, have you gotten an iPhone 10 yet, or are you thinking about doing it? I know we've talked about this. I'm I'm thinking. I, I'm an upgrade. I've still got my iPhone 6X. So I haven't. Here's the thing. They're almost out with the next version, the iPhone 11. Then you know what's going to happen to the iPhone 10? It's going to be obsolete because it's the, the price is going to drop. That's the price it. is going to drop. There you go. I'm waiting for the next iPhone to come out, and then I'm going to buy the 10. Okay. Will the 11 have a headphone jack on it, or will it have the same thing that the the, the 10 has got? It'll be. There won't be a head, head headphone jacks are toast. But I like a headphone jack. Well, that you're just living in the past, Jim. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sorry, Jim. You're just living in the past. Okay. So all right. So how about this? That's so, like that's like saying somebody saying, "Hey, I like a radio over the air radio." I do like an over the air radio. I don't. I don't like streaming. I'll just leave right now if you'd like. <laughs> um, but let me ask you this: the uh, the iPhone eight mm-hmm. is that the same camera as the six? No, no. The camera. If you get a seven, you'll get a substantially better camera. Okay. Between the six and the seven. The 8 and the 7 have almost the same camera. Okay. The big step in camera was between 6 and 7. So compare the 7 and the 10 camera. Yeah. Same thing? No. The, Different. The, big the, difference between the 7 and the 10. Yeah. Because the 10 camera was really designed to have more of this three-dimensional viewing right. so they could do face recognition with it. Does the 7 have a headphone jack? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> what? The 6. You're, you're the stuck. 6 is the last one. Yeah, the 6 is the oh, last right. one. So... So you're 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 wrecked my whole day. Your tech talk returns next Saturday at nine on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, fifteen hundred AM, one oh three five FM HD two and one oh three nine FM HD two. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call one eight hundred four 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 oh eight oh four. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.